turn with me again this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. This morning, verse 12 through 31. We'll consider this passage this morning and then uh, again in a couple of weeks when we uh, share the Lord's Supper together. Hear God's word. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had given a cup, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. A few weeks ago, uh, a scene from the story Les Miserables um, was brought up in our men's Bible study uh, as an example of God's grace. I wanted to bring it to mind this morning. Uh, it's a scene where the main character, Jean Valjean, is a convicted criminal. No one will take him in. No one will give him shelter. He's just gotten out of prison. Uh, no one except for this old bishop and his wife. They graciously take him in, feed him, and so on, and uh, he repays their kindness by leaving in the middle of the night with their silver. Right? He steals uh, significantly from them. And the police end up catching him and bring him back and tell the, uh, the bishop what has happened. And, and the bishop uh, says to the police, uh, no, this, this silver was a gift. It was a gift to him. He says this for the sake of Valjean, right? Um, and in fact, he says he, he forgot some of it, and he goes and gets more silver and brings it and gives it to him. And this, um, this prompts the, the main character, Valjean's repentance, and, and really ultimately changes his life. 
this generous grace in the face of his, his thievery, his treachery. Well, this is a good picture of our standing before our, our response to Jesus and his grace. Um, that character, Valjean, was not transformed by someone just urging him to be good or giving him a list of rules to follow, uh, but by an extraordinary act of grace, of, of undeserved favor, when he deserved the opposite. He had betrayed this, this couple. You know, a, a simple gift of all of that silver to someone would have been a remarkable thing, but, but it was against the backdrop of his, his treachery, his, his betrayal, that made it, made it life-changing for him. And likewise, you don't come to follow Jesus because you just work up the moral strength or because you really want to be good, but in response to his patient and unconditional and lavish grace to you in, in the face of your treachery and your unfaithfulness um, to him. You give yourself in gratitude and love. And so that's, that's what I hope you'll see this morning, simply fresh evidence of the incredibly patient grace of Jesus for you. Uh, that you and I would respond with, with greater and more faithful and grateful devotion to him. Well, that, that stunning power of the grace of Jesus in this passage is seen once again against the backdrop of the disciples and their failure uh, and their unfaithfulness. Um, and so we're going to look at that first in number one on your outline there in, in a couple of ways. We see it first in terms of the, the hardening of sin. Um, this, this famous, important, and intimate meal that Jesus has with his disciples begins, uh, incredibly, with Jesus' statement in verse 18, one of you will betray me. One of you who is eating with me here. And of course, Jesus is talking about Judas. He doesn't name him um, specifically, uh, but he confronts him openly here. Uh, Judas doesn't identify himself, doesn't repent. Jesus' uh, warning gets stronger in verse 21. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He pronounces a woe against him. Judas, the judgment of God is against you for what you're planning. You think this is secret. God knows what you're doing, what you're thinking. Uh, what should Judas' response? Judas should be, should be stunned and humbled and scared at this point. Right? Jesus' warning gets even stronger in verse 21. Again, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas, in fact, it's going to be so bad for you if you go through with this. It would be better that you didn't exist. Right? What, what stronger warning could there be from Jesus than that? And, and understand this is a, a gracious warning of Jesus. He's giving Judas an opportunity to repent. An opportunity to, to consider whether 30 pieces of silver is, is worth Facing the wrath of God, betraying the Son of God, and ask for forgiveness, but Judas doesn't doesn't flinch. It seems uh, it should have been a warning for all the disciples, right? Jesus goes on to warn all of them that they're going to betray him in some way, um, and it and it shows to them and to us the the danger of sin and how it progresses, how it how it hardens us. Right? This sin has been growing in Judas. It's been hardening him over time. I think it's probably safe to assume that Judas initially followed Jesus with some genuine attracted, attraction to him and his ministry. But, but at some point, Judas made a decision or a series of decisions in, in selfishness that have festered and mat, uh, have, have metastasized in him and in his thinking. 
Uh, and now he's he's single-minded. He won't be deterred from his his sin, his plan, even in the face of you know learning that this is not a secret. Jesus knows what he's planning, even in the face of of a reminder of the wrath of God and um, these direct warnings. Well, how often do we pursue sin in in even a determined way like that? Um, the Holy Spirit graciously gives you reminders, gives you off ramps. Um, and yet you, you plow ahead simply for the satisfaction of whatever it is you want, the, the you know, feeling bad for yourself or expressing your anger or, or chasing your lust. Uh, we need to be aware of the hardening of sin, that this is a warning of. James chapter 1, uh, James says, Sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Uh, that's it, its desire, its ultimate end is, is to destroy you. Uh, don't entertain or tolerate sin in your life. Hear the warnings of Scripture. I, one writer I think I've cited before says that, that tolerate, tolerating or coddling your sin is like taking in a, a, a pet tiger cub. Right? It's, it's cute and fluffy at first, seems harmless, and then one day you wake up and find it's eating you alive. That's the progression of sin that's not dealt with. That's one thing in, in the background here to what Jesus does and says. The, the rest of the disciples also contribute to the, the stunning backdrop of this scene as well in their self-confidence. The, the other Gospels tell us that Judas leaves this scene at this point. He, he doesn't stay for this whole um, scene, so he's gone. And, and after Jesus makes these incredible promises in, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, he turns to warn all of them. In verse 27, you will all fall away, he says. Now, note what Jesus says here and what he doesn't say to the other 11 disciples. He's not saying that they are going to uh, betray him to death um, as Judas is, as one of them was going to. He doesn't say they're going to become uh, hardened enemies against him or Baal worshippers tomorrow or something like that. But he's telling them they're in great danger of stumbling, right? of, of failing some some test that's coming, giving in to pressure, not, not permanently maybe, but seriously, dangerously. Now just think what, what their response should have been. What, what should the rest of the disciples' response have been? Lord, help me. right? Guide me through this. I, I am weak. I'm prone to wander. I don't even know my own weaknesses. Give me strength. Show me how to be faithful through whatever this is that's coming. That wasn't their response, though. A couple of months ago, I read about a, a hiker in North Carolina who, was, uh, who planned a 30-mile um, hiking, camping loop through the mountains of North Carolina. And as he was planning, uh, a big, very cold snowstorm was being predicted, and um, it didn't deter him. His, his friends became concerned and warned him about going on this, this trip, and uh, he brushed that off and said he'd be quite fine. Um, but then his, his life was barely saved a few days later by, by a search and rescue team uh, there in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, Jesus is giving that kind of, of warning. Um, he's, again, not saying they're, they're going to intentionally become his enemies in a day, but that's where sin leads when it's treated lightly. Immediately after this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is what we'll look at next week, next Lord's Day, uh, Jesus is going to again warn them and, and Ask them to pray, right? Pray with me for what's coming. Pray that you'll be faithful. And they fall asleep, right? 
He comes back, wakes them up, and tells them again, we need to pray. And they fall asleep again. What do the disciples say here in response? They, in the beginning, they say, surely not I, right? And this is really their attitude throughout. Not me, right? There's no way. Jesus, you've got the wrong person. I'm strong. I've got this. Peter, of course, speaks up and makes the strongest statement here, verse 29. Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Maybe these knuckleheads, right? But not, not me. I'm fine. You know me. Jesus immediately assures him, no, tonight you're going to deny me. Three times. Peter gets even stronger in his protest. This is not really all that much unlike when Peter rebuked Jesus previously for telling him about what's coming. Uh, Verse 31, Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Right? In fact, it's not just Peter saying this. It goes on to say they were all saying the same thing. Now, if this is your first reading of the Gospels, you might think, well, the, you know, the disciples have really grown. Look at their strong faith now. I mean, look at this, this statement, this confident, uh, loyal statement that they're making to Jesus. We haven't, haven't heard this kind of thing from the disciples yet, but what's the reality? The, the reality is that in the face of Jesus' humility and gracious, clear warning to them, they're, they're exhibiting arrogant self-confidence, really. Not, not pleading for the grace they need to face what Jesus is warning of, but essentially telling him he's, he's completely wrong. Again, we see this in the next scene when they, they fall asleep instead of praying for the strength that, that they need. Uh, just note how the, how the word all uh, comes up throughout this passage beyond what we've read even this morning. They, uh, in verse 23, Jesus Gives them the cup. They, they all drink. They all gladly receive Jesus' promise in the Lord's Supper. Right? Verse 31, they all are swearing that they would, they would die before they abandon him. And then it comes up again in verse 50. They all left him and fled. Just a couple hours later. Right? They all left him and fled. Uh, there's so much here for us to think about. Um, you know, Those of us who have true faith might... But would probably legitimately protest if someone predicted that you know you were going to become a Buddhist tomorrow, or that you were planning some evil atrocity next week, or something like that. But but again, this is not what Jesus is warning these eleven about. He's warning them about being weak, about lacking faith, lacking resolve, about giving in to temptation, and so not not intentionally, not deliberately, in terms of planning ahead like Judas, but but falling away from active faith and obedience. They, they weren't, he was warning them they weren't ready to be faithful. They weren't actively planning some evil. They weren't ready to be faithful. And so I want to give that challenge to us this morning. Do you fail like the disciples to take seriously the power and the reality of, of sin in the future? To, to guard against future sin or weakness or temptation? You need to do that by taking action now. By praying, as, as Jesus will urge them in the next passage, pleading for God's help and strength and wisdom and recognizing and confessing your weaknesses. Uh, how often do you listen to or read God's Word and, and just casually pass over examples or warnings of, of sin with 
really with the attitude of, of Peter and with his self-confidence. You know, that's, that's someone else's problem. Right? Maybe all of them, but not me. And then, and then the next minute you're, you're falling into some kind of unfaithfulness. Which of you, no matter what the case might be right now, because really that's what Peter and the disciples were pleading. Like, look, look at us. We're here with you. We're faithful, right? Which of you, no matter the case right now, does not need to guard against unfaithfulness in your marriage or, or lack of love? Which of you doesn't need to guard your heart against anger or bitterness? Which of you doesn't need to plan for, for faithfulness? Well, Mark likes to give, as we've seen a number of times, stories in sandwiches. He starts one story and then inserts another one and then finishes the first one. And that's essentially what he's doing here in this passage again with, with the Lord's Supper and what Jesus says in the middle. And the middle is, is the emphasis when Mark does that. And uh, it's Jesus' sacrificial giving of himself in the Lord's Supper and that's against the backdrop of the, the bread of the sandwich here. Again, what we've seen, what we've considered so far, Jesus surrounded by hardened sinners or, or just uh, self-confident, uh, ignorant um, sinners who don't know themselves. And we can see ourselves in, in, that, in that as well. But it serves to highlight all the more Jesus' person and role. So uh, secondly, on your outline, I want to I turn... To that, how it highlights Jesus' grace, how you see your salvation. First, here in Jesus' perfect sovereignty. In Jesus' perfect sovereignty. And this is in the first several verses of this passage here, where Jesus um, orchestrates and has perfect knowledge of how the Lord's Supper is going to be prepared for. And it's very similar to just a, a few days before. Uh, the triumphal entry, when Jesus there also, some of the details are the same. He sends some disciples into the city. You're going to meet this person. You're going to say this, and this is going to happen. And, and part of the point is, is stated explicitly in verse 16. They found it just as he had told them. All right, and this, is the, this is the week, of course, of Jesus' death. And what it, what it shows us repeatedly is that Jesus' death is not something that just will happen to him. He's, he's not just a tragic hero. It, it's also not producing in Jesus uh, anger and, and desperation and despair, but he has this, this perfect knowledge and control of all that's happening leading up to his death. Right? He's, he's going to this willingly, trusting the Father. And that, again, despite the lack of, of faithfulness of his closest friends. There's a, there's a lesson for you just, just in that, I think, that... It's true of you as well, in a sense, in Christ, that, that you stand that same calm confidence in whatever you face in life. Not that you have control or perfect knowledge of events, but you're free, as Jesus was, you're free in him of the control of events happening to you. You're free of the, the control of others and what they say or what they do or what they think of you. Um, not that difficult things won't happen, but but it's ultimately Christ who's sovereign over those things in your life. This is why the Bible has statements like, who will separate us from the love of God? Shall this or that or the other terrible thing? It's not saying that those things won't happen, but none of them separates us from the sovereign love of God. 
in our lives, right? God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Uh, Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Uh, this is Jesus' calm confidence um, as, he, as He goes to the cross that week. You can look at the events and challenges of your day, maybe tomorrow or of your week, and know that um, Jesus knows He's planned those things for your good. Um, and for his glory. And that, that even includes, this, this passage in, uh, highlights that includes your failures. Jesus included the disciples' failures in that. In verse 27, again, when he said, you will all fall away because it is written. And he quotes from the Old Testament. This has been part of God's plan and decree forever. right? Not to excuse what they were, how they were going to fail, but God in his sovereign goodness was going to turn that Turn that for good. It was part of his sovereign plan. Secondly, uh, the second P I have for you here in terms of how we see your salvation and Jesus' grace against the backdrop of the disciples' failure is his prodigal sacrifice. His prodigal sacrifice. Maybe we uh, most ordinarily um, take the word prodigal in a negative connotation, right? As in the prodigal son. Um, but the word is not inherently negative. It simply means extravagant or lavish or even extravagantly generous. And so that's the sense in which I intend it here. We're going to spend very little time here looking at the actual Lord's Supper and the bread and the wine. We're going to come back to that in two weeks when we have the Lord's Supper together. Uh, but just very briefly consider this, this very middle of the sandwich here. Verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread and after blessing, he broke it. And gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And that's uh, and what Jesus is saying there, this is my body, is more than just this is my, my bones and, and my skin. It's, it's not the Greek word just for your flesh, but, but for my, my being, my, my whole self, my whole person. I'm giving my whole being to you. And likewise in verse 24, my, my blood is poured out for you. In, in Hebrew thought, the, the life, someone's life uh, was in the blood. Right? Or animal life was in the blood. It's, it, it, it's a symbol of his giving his life. You have life in me, only in me, in my giving myself unconditionally for your eternal life. I just want you to think again how incredible this is. That he's saying this to a group of guys who every time he's brought up his suffering and his death for them, they respond by changing the subject or arguing about which of them is most awesome or rebuking him. Um, he, he's at a table of, of arrogant, self-confident men who will show themselves to be cowards and, and shortly go back on their commitment 180 degrees. And, and, and we can understand all of this to some, in, in some way uh, on a human level, right? The fear that they're going to experience um, the, the lack of experience that they have and what Jesus is trying to help them understand, it's, it's all very human in one sense. But, but my point is simply that Jesus is making these promises in the face of his total abandonment within a few hours. And, and that none of these men deserves to be at the table with Jesus. Right? Receiving the, the, the greatest of privileges ever. And, and hearing these promises... They don't deserve to be at the table, and yet he gives himself in, in prodigal, life-giving sacrifice for these men. 
And, and just like these eleven, not one of you, not me, none of us deserves to be at the table with Jesus. Right? Maybe we're not conscious enough uh, of that as, as we should be. Uh, you or I may be feeling pretty good about our commitment to him, pretty confident that, that we're strong enough to keep on being faithful like the disciples were. But like them, like with them, Jesus knows all of your past sins, right? even the ones you would rather die than have exposed. Um, he knows the things that are in your heart and my heart right now. He knows perhaps how distracted you and I are now, even in worship, thinking about work or lunch or other things. He knows the argument you had this morning or the way you yelled at your kids or all the unfaithfulness that will mark your life until the day you die. And yet he says to you again and again in the Lord's Supper, I I give myself to you unreservedly, unconditionally, uh, in devotion and love now and forever. My, My body, my blood is poured out for you. You're, you're clean and accepted child of God. That's what's highlighted here. I was recent, reading recently about uh, John Robert Fox, who was, uh, maybe some of you know his story. He's a soldier in World War II, an American soldier. Uh, he was given the Medal of Honor posthumously a couple of decades ago. Um, but his, his story is he was fighting in a city in Europe uh, in World War II, and a, a city that was being overrun by Nazi soldiers, and he was a, a communications guy, and he was calling in um, uh, airstrikes, artillery strikes against the enemy as they were uh, overwhelming the city um, so that the Allies could, could escape. And uh, he ended up calling in a strike on his own position because it would be been so overrun with, with enemy soldiers and, and um, protested against the, you know, the person he was communicating with uh, against the idea that they would bring a strike right where he was. Um, he insisted against that. And the next day they found his body there with, with about a hundred uh, enemy soldiers. Uh, his sacrifice allowed many allies to escape. And it's an incredible story of sacrifice and yet, on it, 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 some level, it makes it makes sense to us, right? That John Fox would would sacrifice, would offer a sacrifice like that for men that he loved, that were worthy of that sacrifice. They were they were sacrificing for him. That he would do that for a, a country and an allied cause that he considered so worthy. And my point is that there is no such explanation for for the Son of God's sacrifice for these men, or for you, or for me. Right? The, the worthiness of his sacrifice is in his own glory and, and the glory of God throughout all of history, not in anything in, in you or me or in these men here. We, we deserve to be in hell, not to be at his table. Uh, and yet that's where we're welcome unconditionally. Uh, finally, I want you to see your salvation here and, and against this backdrop in Jesus' patient grace. And I want to draw your attention to what might simply be, we might simply see as just sort of a throwaway piece of the narrative here, um, but but is an incredible offer of grace in verse 28, where Jesus says, "But after he's just told them that they're going to uh, fail miserably and abandon him, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee." 
Jesus knows, Jesus says this, knowing that, that they don't even believe that he's going to die, or if they suspect he will, they don't understand why that has to happen. Uh, he, he says this knowing they're going to abandon him in a few hours. He says this knowing that they're going to be cowering in fear after his death, even after his resurrection, because they haven't believed a word he's said, even about his resurrection. I can't imagine how hurtful this experience was or how alone Jesus feels at this point, and yet he's already promising reconciliation to them. Right? He's already anticipating a reunion with them um, after their hurtful sin against him. This is, this is Jesus' promise to them. No matter what you do, uh, my, my love is still there. Right? Grace still stands. The kingdom of God is here and will advance no matter what, what humans do or how they fail. And I will meet you in Galilee, he says. Right? You and I will fail. We do fail. We have, we have so many reasons to joyfully follow, to, to fully um, obey Jesus. So many reasons to put aside sin. And we need to strive in those things and for those reasons. But the Christian life is not primarily about obedience and, and resolving to be better. Um, sort of like the disciples uh, just resolve by willpower here. It's about resting in the gracious love and sacrifice of Jesus for you, despite all your failures. Humbly receiving, really believing and loving His mercy toward you. So every time that you fail, you can meet Jesus in Galilee, as it were. He's waiting for you in Galilee. There is no penance. Right? There is no waiting period. He's given himself completely and unconditionally for you always, already. And he's, he's waiting for you in Galilee, as, as it were. And, and that's really my, my primary takeaway for you that I hope for you this morning. I don't have a checklist of applications for you, but, but rather that you would receive and rest in and love the grace of Jesus for you. you know, picture yourself in, in a church with stained glass windows. I grew up in such a church and. It always looks nice, but when it's dark inside and, and the sun is bright outside is, is when it really shines uh, brilliantly. They, it looks amazing right? against the darkness. That's, again, how Jesus' grace shines against the darkness of, of the, the failure and the unfaithfulness all around him. And to acknowledge your own sin or remaining darkness is to allow yourself to see more fully how the grace of Jesus uh, shines to you faithfully and unconditionally uh, against that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for your word, uh, that it's true and uh, reliable, that it's a guide, a perfect guide to us. Um, we pray that you would help us to give ourselves fully and willing to others uh, despite their weaknesses and failures, uh, after the example of Christ, that we'd be mindful of His willing sacrifice and patient grace uh, equally for every one of us. Uh, help us to reflect on these things and, and live in them in the coming week uh, and weeks and years. And we pray all this in His name. Amen.